Hello and welcome back to the Next Stage podcast by Web Summit. My name is Luke and today we're taking you inside the minds of business and cultural leaders from around the globe. It's Tuesday, so we're looking at some of the best and brightest minds that CollisionConf has to offer. So sit back, relax and listen in. We'll be hearing from leading minds and industry giants from all over the planet. Okay, I am here with Mark Ruffalo and Gloria Walton to talk about the Solutions Project. It is so nice to be with you. I wish we were in person, um, but this is still where the world is right now, and it is great to see your faces on my screen. So uh, let's jump into your work. Just tell me, and maybe Gloria, I'll point this one to you. Tell me about the Solutions Project and in particular, how it's different from other environmental organizations. So um, great to be here with you, Radhika, and thank you for joining us and always good to share space with you, Mark. Um, yeah, so the Solutions Project, we're a national intermediary organization that actually resources power building and movement building institutions innovating at the intersections of climate and the economy. And the way that our resourcing looks uh, is basically grant making and media amplification. And we believe that it's important to invest in Black, Indigenous, immigrant, women, and women of color-led organizations that are serving BIPOC communities across the country, because these are areas, places, and leaders, and organizations that have been historically underinvested and disinvested in for way too long. And so we believe and actually put into practice uh, equity, which is recognizing that that historic disinvestment and underinvestment has happened. Therefore, we are intentionally overinvesting in these places and spaces. And we moved from um, doing 40% investment in these organizations uh, a few years ago to now upwards of 95% plus in BIPOC and women of color led leadership. And then the amplification piece is recognizing that in addition to being under-resourced, it's often the stories of these communities that are not told. And so we believe that it's important to amplify the stories, the innovations um, that are happening on the front lines and celebrate these leaders and their solutions. And, and we partner um, with celebrities like our founder, Mark Ruffalo, and other celebrities and, and friends uh, who are willing to leverage their platforms and shine a light on these leaders who are innovating climate solutions that benefit everyone. So Mark, on that note, you have a very successful day job. Um, you just won a Golden Globe. Congratulations for your work in the limited series. I know this much is true. Um, so how did you get involved in this work and how much of your life is this work now and how do you balance um, all of those commitments? <sighs> um, so I, I came into it, you know, I've always been someone um, who was had a relationship to, to the environment, uh, even starting as a, as a little boy. Um, and, I, and I saw that I lived on the Great Lakes and I saw a concerted effort in the 70s to, to clean them up and I actually saw them get clean. I, I saw it happen. I saw what what could happen if we if we direct resources and our attention to these these massive problems. Um, but I, I had moved my family into upstate New York, which was the front line of um, the fracking fight in New York State. Um, it's rural and um, a lo lot of low income uh, people. And um, that that brought me to um, many other different front lines. Uh, 
a lot of them having to deal with water, uh, Detroit and um, Flint, Michigan, um, places where um, Standing Rock, uh, uh, places where there was uh, Los Angeles even, um, frontline communities, uh, uh, people of color in Los Angeles who were living on um, the front lines of uh, extraction. Huge oil wells and fracking wells in the middle of Los Angeles, and um, and I and I I just started to see a need for these stories to be told, to be lifted, and for us to start to um, change the way we looked at energy, and change the uh, the approach that environmentalism had taken for the last thirty years, which has been predominantly um, ineffective for the problems that we're facing. And so that's that's how I got to you. That's how I'm here, and that that's how I got. And, and and along the way, I noticed that most of the deep organizing that was happening was by women. Uh, 90 90 percent of it, and the and the effective strategy makers and the people who who, who did not who weren't afraid uh, to bow down to power. I mean, who weren't afraid to fight power. Who did not bow down to power, and who were not afraid to um, to to displease power. And uh, that's, that's how I got here today. And, and the Solutions Project was started with the idea to bring 100% renewable energy to 100% of the people. And along that, along that journey came the journey of racial justice and, um, and environmental justice, justice and climate justice, and how those, all those things intersect and how important it was to talk about those things in the context of environmentalism and climate change. I do think it's um, it's so important that perspective that you both talk about because a lot of people I'm guessing don't think about climate change as involving justice. They think about science of it, they think about you know the, the dangers of it, but the, but the concept of environmental justice or climate justice, I imagine, is new to people. So how, how would you characterize the critical nature of that challenge, like sort of helping people to understand what you mean by environmental justice um, and, and why it matters in particular to focus on the communities you're focusing on? So when I think about justice, I think about acknowledging harm that we've done. And um, it's a collective we, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, you can think about the, the role of government, you can think about um, the founding of our country, even, um, you know, where we have these beautiful ideals of justice, liberty, freedom, um, and, you know, the right to happiness, the, the right to the pursuit of happiness. But at that time, it didn't include you and I, Radhika, for sure. Right. Um, as women, um, it didn't include black people. It didn't include indigenous communities. Um, it was really about white men who had access to land and capital. And that is um, part of the, you know, what is often framed as like the original sin. And that's something that we're still living with and trying to rectify today, which is why a lot of communities are taking to the streets saying, hey, you got to acknowledge that this is here. Um, you know, it has reverberating impact that many communities, communities of color in particular, are living with every single day. 
And so when you're thinking about environmental justice is acknowledging that, okay, the way that we've done production and consumption in this society and, and production in particular has been um, an extractive approach, um, an approach that has commodified people, um, that has commodified our land, meaning put a value or a, a dollar sign on people and communities in our um, sacred places and spaces. And we've extracted in a way that, that it's all about profit. And it's done so much harm um, where it's literally slow deaths and really immediate deaths to a lot of people. Um, and it's killing our planet as well. And so environmental justice communities, you know, I think about redlining. Um, you know, people are like, oh, redlining, that happened way in the past. But the reality is, you know, as we talked about the founding of the country, we talked about um, kind of colonization. Uh, you, you know, you can think of um, slavery, the Jim Crow era, um, and then, you know, the, the era of redlining. It's really those same redline communities are the same environmental justice communities of today. And I appreciate you bringing up um, Los Angeles, Mark. You know, that's where I organized was in South Central LA. And people had to create a campaign called Stand LA, Standing Together Against Neighborhood Oil Drilling, because someone made a decision to put oil drilling and fracking sites in South Central LA. And this is a highly concretized area with minimal parks and open space. And it's a community that's at the center of freeways that surround it from the north, south, east, and west. Right, and so those were decisions that were made to create those conditions. So when we're thinking about environmental justice, it's, it's acknowledging that. And it's saying, okay, let's make better decisions. And I often think about equity as about leveling the playing field because it's acknowledging this historic disinvestment and underinvestment. And so if we wanna level the playing field, then we need to rectify by overinvesting in these places on the front lines. That's what people are fighting for. They want a clean energy economy that does not have the same racism, sexism, and income inequality that exists in today's economy. We have an opportunity to do better. And communities want to join forces with government, uh, with industry leaders, with media, and really paint the story of how the new way is possible because they're the ones on the grounds leading it. I think that emphasis that you talk about of the, the people on the ground is so compelling because the threat, some of the threats that you both have outlined, um, you know, whether it's it's fracking or thinking about clean energy. Um, energy solutions, whether uh, it's, um, you know, the sort of overarching problem of climate change, it can feel so big and so unwieldy. Um, I think that it can often leave people feeling paralyzed because, you know, it's hard to, you can't solve it individually. And so, and so it's hard to take action at all. So I'm curious, because you're so grant focused and you're thinking so much about leadership. And as you say, the people who are making those individual decisions for their communities. Um, Mark and Gloria, are, are there a couple of grantees, a couple of leaders whose stories um, are really illustrative to you or resonate with you, like people who have a, a achieved a clear outcome and, and, and who can illustrate the value of that um, local work? Biden and Harris have start, started with this kind of $2 trillion um, uh, infrastructure plan and its organizations like Uprose and Push Buffalo and uh, New York Environmental Justice Alliance that inspired uh, this initiative called Justice 40 that they're doing right now. 
it's all about 100% clean energy. And the idea is that 35 to 40% of those investments would go to environmental justice communities because these are the communities that are on the front lines. And that is what inspired the Biden-Harris initiative. And so it's things like that where it's rec government recognizing that there's so much to learn from leaders on the ground. Um, I, I also think about indigenous communities, like when it comes to how we treat our people and our land, there's so much to learn from our tribal nations. Um, and so it's that approach that is gonna be imperative for us to accelerate a clean energy economy together. And then industry leaders, like I just have to always remind us to think about those leaders as well, because the role of government and industry leaders have tremendous roles to play when it comes to transforming this economy. Um, you know, I think about Justice 40, for example, what that is not saying, while it's a good start, it's not the panacea, right? It's still 40%, um, meaning that it's not the line share that's going into these communities, but it's a good start. And so given that it's a good start, there's still more work to do. Um, industry leaders need to do better. Um, it doesn't mean now you get 40% and then the government and industry leaders continues to have things like cap and trade where we pay to pollute. And that's an oversimplified way of describing it, but essentially that's what happens. There's a cap on how much you can pollute, but if you can afford to pay for more pollution credits, you can. That's a problem that, you know, that's not a innovative solution oriented way. And so that's kind of what we want to disrupt but it can only happen when everyone's at the table together. Government, community leaders and community organizations, industry leaders, media, because media needs to coin and tell these stories differently. Um, so those would be my offerings of, of all of us needing to have all hands on deck to make this thing possible and to definitely make sure that it's centered and anchored with communities, people first. And, and, and when we do people first, it's like we're not only looking out for each other, but people look out for their land and their resources as well. It can't just be about money and profit anymore. So let me follow up with you about the role of the media because I'm here representing the media, um, <laughs> the editor of Vanity Fair. And I, and, I, and I did, I wanted to ask you both, um, what should we be doing in the media differently um, to cover these issues? Uh, that could move the needle on it. And I, you know, I also worked at Time Magazine for eight years and we did, a, I think we did the first national magazine cover story on the, um, the water crisis in Flint. Like there, you know, there, there are clear opportunities to draw national attention to community um, challenges. And I think, you know, my perspective is we wanna be attentive to them, but we wanna do it in ways that are constructive. Um, and I'm curious from your perspective, like what, where do you see the gaps or the opportunities from, for storytelling? I'll let you lead on this one, Mark, and I'll follow. You know, um, it's just following those stories down in, into places that we normally wouldn't go. We, you know, we were just on another call, on another interview, and, and it came up the, the coverage of Texas and, and, um, and Mississippi. And, and the disparity between uh, the, the coverage of the exact same event, uh, you know, loss of power, people living in their cars, loss of water. Uh, one state was predominantly white and the other states predominantly, or, or those communities that were suffering were predominantly uh, uh, black uh, people of color and, um, and, and lower uh, income people. And, you know, the media didn't really go there. 
And, you know, in all of our institutions in the United States, there's, there's, a, there's a racial bias. I mean, it's just in the, it's in the DNA of our country. It, you know, 244 years, our country's been built on this. We, you know, part of our economic um, system is, uh, believes in the idea of sacrificial people, sacrificial zones, um, and, and racism as a, um, as a mandatory part of a thriving uh, economy. And, um, you know, we really, and it's in our DNA. I mean, we, we're, we're conditioned to it in ways that we're not even mostly aware of. Um, if you ask the media, they'd say they covered that uh, well. Um, and, and so it's, it's really like being uncomfortable. And like, when we talk about equality, we get down to numbers, we get down to actual quantifiable um, metrics that we can measure this by. We can all look and see. I mean, we just did a study of uh, just solar um, stories in the media, we every year the Solutions Project does these analyses, and only there's only like three percent, even though, um, and this is Gloria, I'm, I'm, she could speak to this, even even though we know these are the communities that are being most affected by climate change right now, um, and so I would ask the media to 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 really make a um, a serious effort, not not just saying it, but in action, indeed. Uh, to, to follow these stories into those places where they normally aren't being followed. And by the way, Hollywood's going to do it. We're, we're, we're on board. I mean, and, and we're at, I'm asking you as a, as a fellow of media to, to do the same. Because the stories are compelling no matter where you're telling them. They transcend all of the things that we think separate us. And there's great power in it. It's just putting our focus and our a lens on those places. That's what I would say. That's right. And I am dittoing that with an exclamation point. And you know, just to kind of offer some paint strokes to what Mark was mentioning about Texas and Mississippi. You know, I have family in Houston, Texas, and um, my mom and sister and nieces and nephews live in Jackson, Mississippi. And absolutely, Texas got amazing coverage as it should have, right, during an ice storm that was impacting and devastating communities. And then there was Jackson, who was equally devastated by this ice storm and um, had you know, for, I think it was, it was over nearly three weeks or slightly over three weeks that they were without water. And so it was really illuminating this outdated water infrastructure that was there. And this was my family who, you know, during the ice storm was in their vehicle to keep warm with my baby niece and nephews um, in the car overnight sleeping. Uh, didn't have water, but it was community organizations that I was able to call in Jackson and say, hey, my family doesn't have food who came right away. And I know that they didn't just feed my family and didn't just bring water to my family, but many others. And then it was my mom uh, who was just like, Gloria, we're not on the news. You know, I'm not hearing about Jackson. Why are the, you know, President Biden needs to know. And then it was also my mom uh, a couple weeks later where she was like, oh, we were on CNN. Oh, um, we were on The View. They're talking about Jackson on The View. So it's that kind of, people want to be seen and, and feel like, you know, we care and that their government cares and sees them and media can help do that. Media can help elevate those stories and those experiences so that we all can understand each other's vantage point. Um, you know, when I think about government in particular, 
in us in society, I think the dominant theory of change is that we think we elect a great person and put them in office and everything changes. But the reality is that you can put the greatest person with the most progressive values inside of an institution. And the trend is that that person uh, will be battling corporate interests and financial interests. And so it's really important for communities on the outside to move that person towards our interest. And media can help do that. Like right now, a lot of what's covered um, aren't community stories. And so, you know, media can help elevate those stories. We did a report um, and we do a report every year that really showed that US media, um, we were thinking about race and gender and equity and how it plays out. And in 2019, we found that it was less than 5% of US clean energy coverage even referenced communities of color. But we know that that's where the innovation's happening and we know that those are the communities most impacted. So that's a precise place where media can do yeah. better. It's, um, you know, that is very actionable um, and bracing to hear. And it reminds me that as, as I was watching um, the coverage of those events, it struck me sitting in New York City that local media was playing an incredibly valuable role. And of course, we, you know, we live at a time when local media has been sort of gutted. And so in a way, these relationships are symbiotic. It's, it's those outlets often who know the communities who can elevate those stories and bring them to national attention. And it feels to me like, you know, on the media side, we have to work on that too, make sure that we are strengthening our local media outlets as, um, as well as our national ones. So we, we have time for one more question. And I, and I just wanna acknowledge the year that we are slowly emerging from this very difficult pandemic year, which um, obviously had incredible challenges globally, but also um, in, in terms of uh, the climate crisis, you know, gave us some incidental learnings that, um, that I wonder if, if they've um, had any effects on you and your work. Um, with air travel reduced so drastically, you know, I think we saw our carbon footprint um, decrease dramatically. I know I think differently now about travel, um, about whether it's necessary for me to get on a plane to do something, um, or can I, can I, um, you know, make individual decisions that will help the planet. Um, I wondered what are some lessons in your, sort of in the zone of your work that that came across during this past year, and um, and whether you want to carry some of that forward into the future, whether it's been kind of galvanizing. Um, for you to to see um, even a renewed focus on some of these issues and like our ability to actually make change in real time. Yeah, um, I can kick us off. Um, you know, so we're actually a virtual organization and we were founded as one. And, and so um, it didn't impact our day-to-day -day operations like it did a lot of our grantee partners, for example. And so a, a big lesson for us was seeing, um, similar to how you talked about media, like local media, uh, knowing best what's happening in their own communities. The same thing with our uh, grantee partners, like trusting that they know best with what's happening in their own communities and, and really doubling down um, our resources to these areas um, who are providing mutual aid during a time of COVID and showing up for their communities um, when no one else is. And, um, making sure that we are resourcing to our maximum ability during a time like this versus what tends to happen is people kind of hold the purse close. <laughs> and this is actually the time where we need to like spill it open. 
because uh, you know that's how you carry and hold each other through um, challenges. And that's what we've been doing um, with our grantee partners um, and listening deeply about what we can do better, how we can be better, recognizing that these are communities and leaders that are working at the intersections um, and have pushed us to actually have an intersectional approach to solutions because what they're seeing is how we invest those dollars, it just has multi-fold multi reverberating impact because they're not just addressing one thing, but a myriad of problems. And so um, our dollars, and not that it's just about where your dollars go, but often in philanthropy, people want those metrics. And I often think that we need to think differently about scale, right? Like we think that it's just about high numbers, but really the, the way scale can look is okay, in an environmental justice community, you're giving this organization $250,000 for the next five years. And they're not only addressing climate and innovating climate solutions, but they're addressing poverty and creating jobs and thinking about um, air quality in their communities and doing education and mobilizing the vote, <laughs> right? And so the money goes so far. And so to me, that's what scale is. Like that's a scale of impact that, crosses many issues um, and is often regional. And each of these organizations recognize that they can't do this work alone. And so they're often an allyship with other community organizations across the country and across their region and across the state. And so that for me is, um, yeah, the, the reverberating impact and, and a new way to kind of think about scale um, with our resources during a time of COVID in particular. And I would I would add to that, um, you know, I, I don't, I just feel like in life, no matter how hard uh, something you live through is, you're always given a gift um, through that experience. And um, the gift of this time has been understanding how deeply uh, important our relationships are to each other and, and how, connected we are and also relevatory um, in nature has been how these inequalities have become glaringly clear. Um, and so now we, we're now we have to say, now we know what the truth is that these inequalities are real. Um, we've seen them with our own eyes. We've experienced them. We've seen the people who um, are, we've pushed to the edges of our society, carry us as essential workers through this pandemic. Um, most of those people are BIPOC people or uh, low income people. They carried us through. You, you, you have to lie to yourself in order to not see those realities. You, you have to willfully lie to yourself. There's never, there hasn't been a time in, in, in our generation where it was so difficult to deceive yourself as it is today. And now, since we see it all and we look at our phones and we see it and it's, and it's in our faces every single day, now we have to choose who we're gonna be going forward. And um, that's been the big thing. I, I'm not doing, uh, I'm, not, I'm never gonna do disposable travel ever again, you know? And, and by the way, my priorities have, have changed radically um, through this, uh, 
you know, th there are things that will never be the same um, in, in good ways and in set some sad ways. But I, I would just add that to what Gloria is saying is this, this, this sort of clarification of value that we've experienced through this difficult time. And there's a quote that I heard, it's not love that brings people together, it's hardship. And this has been hard and no one has escaped it. And that makes us more connected to our common humanity. And that is a good thing. It is clarifying to talk about these things with you. It's inspiring too. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. Um, thank you, Gloria. Thank you, Mark. Uh, and I'm going to hand you back to the Collision Conference Studio in Toronto. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more about these topics firsthand, or you want to let us know what you want to hear, be sure to check us out on any of our social media accounts or visit websummit.com. That's websummit.com. <laughs>